Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new episode of Insurance Uncovered. This podcast is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies and is your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering the expanding use of electric vehicles, what insurers should consider as they identify and price electric vehicle risks. Plus, a reinsurance bill in Illinois could help thousands maintain their coverage. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker has indicated that he plans to sign an emergency bill to help more than 51,000 farm mutual policyholders maintain their coverage. Senate Bill 765 amends the Farm Mutual Act to broaden access to reinsurance products by bringing Illinois coverage requirements in line with nearly every other state. Illinois is currently one of only five states to require unlimited reinsurance coverage for farm mutuals. Republican Representative Jeff Kiker is a veteran of the insurance industry. And during the recent full House vote, Kiker stood in support of the bill and asked others to vote in favor so Illinois farmers can continue the state's ever-important agricultural efforts. For over a century and a half, farm mutual operations have been an integral part of our insurance landscape here in the state of Illinois. They offer unique coverages that other insurance companies simply cannot match. However, in recent months, these farm mutuals have faced a significant challenge in securing the unlimited reinsurance coverage that the sponsor spoke to. And regrettably, our state is the only one in the nation with a statutory mandate for that unlimited reinsurance for these farm mutuals. This bill introduces a set of measures designed to incentivize reinsurers to re-enter and recommit to the Illinois farm mutual marketplace and to provide the necessary reinsurance for them to continue operations. With this adequate reinsurance back in place, farm mutuals can continue doing what they do best, delivering exceptional coverage for exceptional value to their 51,000 policyholders, who are currently at risk of losing their insurance. NAMIC and a broad coalition of business and agriculture groups supported this bill as it was unanimously passed in the House and the Senate. A new record has been set. Unfortunately, it's not one we like to see here in the insurance industry. This record is for the number of billion-dollar disasters in a given year. The United States has now seen 25 separate weather events causing damages or losses exceeding $1 billion so far in 2023. That's the highest number the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has recorded since it began tracking the data 43 years ago. NOAA says the disasters include 19 severe storms, two flooding events, a winter storm, a drought, a heat wave, one wildfire, and one tropical cyclone. Tragically, these events took the lives of 464 people and dealt severe economic blows in the regions where they occurred. The total cost in damages from these events is more than $73 billion. NOAA reports that while the annual average number of such disaster events was just 8.1 between 1980 and 2022, that annual average has jumped in the most recent five years to 18 disasters per year. 
Legislation to eliminate subpoena authority from the Federal Insurance Office is expected to be introduced in the Senate this week. A companion bill already exists in the House. At a recent Financial Services Committee meeting, multiple lawmakers discussed FIO's abuse of power with its climate data call and noted that subpoena authority is reserved for regulators. The association is working with members to develop a comment letter to the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs regarding FIO's data call. NAMIC opposes the data call and previously outlined concerns with its massive scope and costs. This new proposed data call is more limited in scope, but it still calls for vast amounts of data on homeowner policies and claims that are not directly related to climate change. FIO is proposing that 240 insurers provide seven data elements for over 40,000 zip codes over a six-year period, continuing each year after that. FIO's data call is occurring at the same time as the National Association of Insurance Commissioners is developing its own data call to help state insurance regulators collect data from insurers to better understand property markets and coverages and protection gaps. Well, it may surprise you to learn that fewer than 1% of vehicles on the roads today in the U.S. are electric. Yet despite slow consumer acceptance, technological advancements, and expanding options for manufacturers are all but ensuring that EVs will be an increasingly significant part of U.S. automobiles in the future. On today's Unscripted, NAMIC CEO Neil Aldrich talks with the association's Tony Cotto about what insurers should consider as they identify and price emerging EV risks. Joining me today on the unscripted portion of the podcast is NAMIC's own Tony Cotta. Tony is our director of auto and underwriting policy here at NAMIC. He's recently authored a new white paper about electric vehicles, which seem to be growing in popularity around the country. There is, as with everything, when it comes to new vehicles, there's new insurance issues that come along with them. And so we're going to talk about that today and Tony's findings in the white paper and some of his work here as it relates to electric vehicles and insurance industry issues. So, Tony, thanks for joining us again. Absolutely, Neil. Excited to talk about uh, exciting possibilities and some realities that uh, that our members are going to be facing. <laughs> yeah. So let's get right into it. So, as I mentioned, electric vehicles, you, you know, you certainly see them more on the road um, and certainly, you know, for lots of reasons, becoming more popular. Uh, we're always, you know, involved in monitoring and trying to sort out what what does this mean uh, for, um, you know, not only the driving public, but our member companies that insure these kind of vehicles. So that's what your white paper explores. So let's just kind of get, you know, what some of some of the differences between the vehicles or some of the general themes that you've uncovered here that insurers ought to be aware about. Oh. Absolutely. Sure. So, um, you know, we, we start out and we say, look, availability of this technology is a great development. This is more options for people. They, yep. you know, these are new things. And it's a technology that was not possible at a mass scale previously. But at the same time, you know, when these car makers are doing things that were science fiction just, just a few years yeah. ago, um, at the same time, we have to accept that there are new risks that come with those developments, and we need to start separating some fact from fiction and some really good and slick marketing 
and really big government programs from the realities of what car buyers are seeing, what car dealers are seeing, and eventually what the claims that our members are seeing when these things are involved in crashes, because they will be involved in crashes. Um, so when you start setting the reality, everyone would, everyone thinks that they're everywhere, when in reality of 20 million cars sold last year, fewer than a million would qualify as electric vehicles. This year, in 2023, we're probably going to eclipse a million vehicles, electric vehicles sold for the first time. That's great, but that's still less than 5% of the cars being sold. Right. So we, we need to sort of dial back, I, I don't want to say dial back the enthusiasm, but dial back any impressions that every car you look at around you is an EV. That's just not the case. Right. No doubt. So it's growing. I mean, there certainly are more of them. You certainly see more of them on the road. Uh, but your point, I mean, it, it's a little, it's 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 certainly a little more realistic than the autonomous vehicle discussion. Now that's got a whole different time frame to it, likely down the road, much further, I would argue. Um, but certainly some perspective there on how many we're seeing. But so let's talk through. You know, we see now a million of these on the road, or likely a million by the end of the year. You know what? What concerns should insurers have or policymakers have as more as these electric vehicles are sharing the roads with regular, you know, fuel power combustion engine vehicles? I guess we call them now, right? Sure, we call them ICE vehicles. Is is yeah, how they, they kind of yes, yes. Are, are referred to by a lot of the the folks in in that space. Um, part of the challenge here, Neil, is that there isn't even an agreement on what constitutes an electric vehicle. You've got uh -huh. different government agencies that say, well, if it's primarily powered by the battery, or does it have to be all powered by the battery? Well, I could argue that a golf cart is all powered by a battery. That doesn't mean it should be on the highway. Right. Um, so there's a lot of definitional questions that are going to need to be answered first. That's going to happen both through federal and state programs. But when we talk about the differences in the actual cars and how they're built, uh, the primary thing is weight. Because they are so battery reliant, EVs tend on average to weigh about a thousand pounds more than the comparable ICE vehicle. So mm -hmm. that's your, your immediate concern is weight when one of these things crashes. Um, some really good news is that our friends over at the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety mm -hmm. have done some testing and preliminary testing is finding that they are extremely safe for the occupants because of that extra weight. In some right. instances, right. The, the drivers and the passengers can feel really safe. I don't know what that necessarily means for the cars that are being struck potentially mm -hmm by a heavier electric vehicle, and time will tell on some of those claims. Um, the big concern also that I think our members and, and insurers generally need to be thinking about is also just the amount of torque that yeah. one of these EVs generates. You're going from zero miles per hour to 60 or 70 a lot faster than in an ICE vehicle that's feeding a tiny amount of gasoline. Mm -hmm. These these batteries are creating instant energy, and some studies have shown it could take a driver up to three years uh, to adjust from uh -huh. a history of driving an ICE car to driving an EV. So that's some of, some of the early findings that we're seeing. 
any any uh, I suppose the opposite of that is also true with heavier vehicle you know, braking time is longer you know it, once you get to speed if you need to mm-hmm. brake for something you know just because take longer to get the vehicle slowed down than a normal vehicle it absolutely does and most of these electric vehicles also come equipped with regenerative brakes so the brakes are actually supplying some of the power that gets stored in the battery mm-hmm. uh, it's there's an interesting wrinkle that I had never actually thought about prior to putting together this this new white paper, which is the way you tow an electric vehicle has to be different than the way you tow a conventional vehicle because of the way that the regenerative brakes work and the way that the back tires roll. You can't really? just you can't just lift the front of an EV and pull it down the road because you're generating power hmm. um, and you're ele- you're further electrifying the car. It, so towing costs are going to go up. So they have to be towed on a flatbed truck. That, kind of that's exactly right. You, no, and I you no have idea. to that's, yeah. you have to winch them up in order to do it correctly. And I guarantee you, there will be some towers out there who don't know this. There will mm-hmm. be EV owners who don't know this, and there there will be some really really nasty claim situations involving towers until this is more widely known. Yeah, that's news to me. I did not know that. Um, that's a interesting little wrinkle. You're right. So you know beyond you know so that sort of the on the road, um, you know heavier cars that accelerate faster, longer to break. Interesting little wrinkles about towing them, etc. Um, you know there's also you know opportunities here for insurers, right? So what do you see there as as you look at this? Very much so. So as insurers always do, we are going to continue to lead the way in the safety conversation. And I think this is a I recently read someone saying that EVs are not simpler than ICE vehicles. They're just differently complex. Mm -hmm. They're Mm -hmm. they're complicated. They're just differently complicated. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And insurance companies are going to lead the way in explaining how they are different, how they are differently complicated, and why those risks need to be treated differently. So part of this is in identifying the risks, in identifying fire risks, in identifying uh, how this affects other lines of business, Mm -hmm. because it's not just a car issue when you start plugging it into your garage. It's a commercial issue for the businesses that want to have a charger out in front of the store as a convenience because people want them. Yeah. But now all of a sudden, do I have a fire risk 10 feet mm-hmm. from my from my commercial building? Right. Um, I can see it being a workers comp issue down the line as P, as you have drivers uh, navigating these these electric vehicles or body shop mechanics who need to be trained on a lot of the the high electric voltage that these things are generating. So it is an opportunity for the insurance industry to lead on educating and on safety and on really assessing the risks accurately and saying, these vehicles are awesome, right? They're great. They're also extraordinarily expensive. Even with tax credits and things like that, you're looking at $70,000. That's a down payment for most people, mm-hmm. you know, and you're talking about a car. But at the same time, 
if we're going to be insuring a $70,000 vehicle, the rates need to match the risk that they sure. pose. So I think sure. there's a lot of opportunities. Innovative policies will come about. Uh, I think there's going to be some interesting questions around things like rental periods, because it takes a long time to fix an EV. Uh, one study oh, recently yeah. showed it's going to take about 58 to 60 days in the shop. Wow. Yeah as opposed to about 20 days for a car, for a, for a traditional car. Mm-hmm. So between parts and finding technicians who know how to fix them, um, no. there's going to be some challenges. But I think insurers will step up to the plate and say, okay, you drive an EV, here's the right price, here's the premium, and here's the kind of coverages that are different than the coverages we would put on a nice vehicle. Yeah, yeah that's that's interesting for sure. Um, do we, we probably, it's probably too soon to know, but one of the, one of the questions I had, which is just from an ownership perspective, you know, cars last longer today, you know, what is it? The average age of a car on the road is something like 11 years old or something. And, you know, they just seem to, you know, the hundred thousand miles, 200,000 miles is the old hundred thousand mile, you know, <laughs> kind of thing with cars, the standard for the cars. And they just seem to last longer. Uh, we, we probably don't know yet. Right. About EVs and how their longevity is going to compare. We don't know yet in terms of the full vehicle builds, but what we are starting to see and sort of it's to be expected early on is the battery life deteriorates over time. Yeah. So a used EV depreciates more quickly in terms of dollar value Uh than a comparable ICE car. But. There are a lot fewer components that could go bad in that uh-huh. time frame. Um, so I, I don't think it's unreasonable to see EVs lasting as long as comparable ICE vehicles. The battery just not may not hold as much of a charge in year 10 uh-huh. Uh-huh. as it did in year one. Yeah. Um, well, similar another, to other electric devices, I suppose, right? The battery exactly. has a lifespan, just like any other battery-powered you know, thing you have in your pocket or anything else. Um, eventually, the battery begins to dwindle in terms of its capability. I, I assume the batteries in the cars now are probably better than they were five years ago, and they'll be better five years from now than they are today. Um, but that's I just wondered about the longevity question, but also knowing that it's a fairly new you know, we don't have a lot of old ones on the road yet mm-hmm. um, to know how they're going to last. So, so, you know, this white paper that we have, it'll be available in NAMIC members on the website or policymakers, either one. And um, certainly won't be the last time we talk about these electric vehicles and their various insurance <clears throat> implications. So, but as you look at these, you know, are you, you know, how would you characterize your point of view on this? Are you bullish or bearish, so to speak, on, on EVs? I would say um, bullish on the technology. I think they are going to be really a a welcome addition to the U.S. fleet. I think there's a lot of potential there. I think the the notions of zero emissions are just absurd and just completely far-fetched. But over time, we could see them having fewer emissions than – ICE counterparts. I think that's very realistic. And I think there's a lot of people for whom an EV makes tremendous sense as a second car mm-hmm. or a city car. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see them replacing long haul fleets anytime soon. 
Yeah. But we're we're certainly heading in a direction where they're going to make up more than a couple of percent of the U.S. fleet. I don't I don't know that they ever get above 20 or 30 percent. I know the federal government would like them to be 60 percent. That that I just don't see happening in in big states all across the country where you have to cover big distances and you yeah. can't do it with a battery. Right. Because um, we're still it, talking most of them 250 miles ish. And then you got to charge for half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I, I think, you know, bearish, uh, b- bullish on, on the technology and the concepts. I think bearish on the idea that we'll all be driving EVs five years from now, 10 right. years from now. Right. 30 or 40 years, maybe you start getting there. Yeah. Um, but it, it's exciting because they are so different and they are they are new. They continue to be interesting. And we are getting interest from regulators and legislators asking questions oh, sure. because they want to know. They say, OK, insurance companies, are you guys treating these differently? How how do how do insurers understand electrification? Because. Policymakers a lot of times will take their cue from us and from our members and say, "Okay, they are different. Um, What we certainly don't want happening is for policymakers to say, no, you guys have to turn a blind eye to the differences and you need to treat all cars the same. Right. That's that's our nightmare scenario. Yeah, they're clearly not. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Right. For sure. Well, listen, Tony, thanks for your work here. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks. for putting the white paper together. Again, anybody NAMIC member-wise or policymaker uh, listening to this can access the white paper on the NAMIC website. And it'll just be another one of a long uh, conversation that we're going to have about these as we as they do become more popular and more prevalent on the road today. So thanks again, Tony, for joining us. And thanks for your work here. Absolutely. Thank you, Neil. And that's a wrap for this week's episode of Insurance Uncovered. We'll be back again on November 29th with more insurance news and perspective. Until then, I'm Kathy Imus. I hope you have a wonderful day.